0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to Season 2 of the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. Welcome to those who are here for the first time, and a hearty welcome back to the LCP Faithful. What we do here is look at what the mainstream media feels is important to tell us about current events, politics, science, religion, and just about anything else, but we're not interested in their spin. We want to look at these stories logically, and we especially want to look at these stories as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you'd like to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. Plastic is an amazing discovery, or invention, or whatever you want to call it. It's made things lighter, more durable, allowed for more conveniently shaped products. It's crucial to life as we know it, because over a relatively short period of time, we've made it that way. I love the environmentalists that drive their cars or ride their bikes full of plastics to various locations in order to protest plastic as they tell us all about it using phones and computers and cameras made of plastic. I mean, the lack of self-awareness, although impressive, is staggering. At this point in our civilization, unless you're living in a third world country or you're an off-the-grid kind of person, and even most of them are beholden to plastics to varying degrees, plastic is vital to our very way of life. That said... Plastic in the wrong locations will have detrimental effects. For the last few decades, we've heard of plastic pollution in the oceans, and we've heard stories of how marine birds, whales, and other marine animals have been found to have starved to death with a belly full of plastic. I had a pastor who likened a bad theology to eating plastic. It, it may feed your theological hunger, but it'll starve you to death over a period of time. The bottom line, except for some medical replacement parts, the general rule of thumb is plastic outside the body, good. Inside the body, bad. You may want to start taking notes here. On today's episode, first we're going to talk about a little bit of plastic. No, wait, strike that. We're going to talk about little bits of plastic, and then we'll partake of a steaming bowl of plastic soup for the soul. And I do mean steaming. And after the bumper, we'll see why maybe I should look into this marine animal plastic diet thing. (laughs) Too soon? So for your safety, and somehow mine as well, we'll have to ask you to mask up real tight-like and then grab your favorite eating spoon, the big one, the one you use for ice cream, because conveniently, as well as durably and flexibly, all while being unbelievably deadly, here we go. Okay, I've got a little riddle here for you, a brain teaser. Ready? Okay, listen carefully. What do six liters, a credit card, 33 years and recycling have in common. Give up? You're deaf! Eh? Huh? Eh, it's not really funny, but it is a brain teaser, right? I mean, what in the world am I talking about here? Well, you may want to hide the children, remove all sharp objects from the general area, ensure your pet is on a leash at all times... Place your feet firmly on the floor, adjust your lap belt to sit low and snug across your hips, and place your tray tables in their upright and locked position. It's more fear porn. Found on the DailyCaller.com headline, people inhale a credit card's worth of microplastic particles every week, study says. Now, personally... I've stopped inhaling since I read this article. I've chosen to only exhale for now, at least until I figure out what I can do to survive the microplastic clouds I'm apparently living in. So this microplastic terror is generally more of a lefty, dying climate type of political issue, but the Daily Caller is considered to be a right-wing news source, so I'm a little surprised to find this article written this way on this site. Oh, and make no mistake, there is very little science contained in climate or environmental science it's mostly just political at this point so let's be clear right off the bat do you feel like you're stacking up a credit card per week in your lungs now i did a little math because that's what i do the average adult lung capacity is about six liters which is about 366 cubic inches because nobody in the entire world uses the metric system i mean seriously a typical credit card is made up of about 0.2 cubic inches of plastic. That means the average adult lungs can hold about 1,700 credit cards. But hold on, hold on. Before you pull them out of your wallet thinking you have a more convenient place to keep them, don't do that. Your your lungs are not a substitute for your wallet. Don't don't put credit cards in there. Now, if you were inhaling a credit card of plastic per week, you'd have about 33 years before your lungs were packed to the limit, to the gills, to the top with microplastics. Now, in the meantime, you'd think there would be some pain or possibly discomfort, a loss of breathing capacity, labored breathing, you know, things like that, right? Are you getting that? Looking on the, uh, on the Wikipedias, we see that plastic was essentially discovered in the mid-1800s, but of course, there wasn't a huge use for it yet, and in the early 1900s, Bakelite was created, and anyone that knows anything about early to mid-1900s knows that Bakelite was literally used pretty much everywhere for everything because it was an amazing product. But it was probably around the 1960s when plastic bottles became popular and fairly rapidly replaced glass. And that's what I would consider to be the start of the plastic revolution. And I'm looking around right now. My keyboard is plastic, my mouse, most of my microphone, the case of my monitor, parts of my office chair, the table I've got everything sitting on, the container for my Mountain Dew Zero, and the interior of my lungs, apparently, all made of plastic. It's a relatively important product in our everyday lives, although admittedly a wooden keyboard would be kind of cool. I just kind of think that it would probably be more time-consuming and costly and less efficient to manufacture, plus, you know, the (laughs) fingertip slivers. So, what we can say for sure is that by 1990, which is 33 years back from today, plastics were in full swing for, um, well, just about everything everywhere. So, wouldn't just everyone that's 33 years old or older be struggling to breathe or just be dead from this microplastic poisoning? No, sorry, I, I know we're not supposed to ask questions. We're just supposed to accept the science. They did a study, after all. Okay. So I want to break this article down piece by piece, and I, I want to start with the stock image that they chose to use. Now, you can follow the link in the notes, uh, but what we see is a beach that's just loaded with garbage and debris, mostly plastic bottles from what I can tell, and clearly this is a major body of water, and this plastic waste appears to be, I guess, just flowing in from the ocean and washing up on the beach, and somewhere an Indian is crying... Except not exactly. This is a Getty image, right? A stock image with the caption of, quote, Garbage, including plastic waste, is seen at Paparo Beach in Miranda State, Venezuela, on June 6th, 2023. Photo by Yuri Cortez slash AFP via Getty Images. So, Paparo, I'm probably saying that wrong, beach in Venezuela. Well, because I'm curious, I had to ask, why is this beach in the massively socialist, poverty-stricken hellhole of Venezuela loaded with garbage? So I hit up DuckDuckGo and asked the question. A number of results popped up. I chose to click on The360Post.com with a headline of, quote, Syringes and Hospital waste line Beaches in Venezuela. Now, the picture they have in that article, no caption, but it's even worse. Less plastic, but it looks kind of like the remnants of a massive tornado. I mean, just trash and debris covering the ground. I mean, everywhere. Now, a few quotes from the very short article. Quote, Syringes, needles, catheters, blood sample tubes, hospital waste is piled up in the middle of a carpet of rubbish on Paparo Beach at the mouth of the Tuy River, 130 kilometers from Caracas. The Guare, one of the tributaries of the Toy River, crosses the Venezuelan capital and carries like a sewer all the filth to dump it into the Caribbean Sea." Hospital waste is nothing new on this beach where the needles protrude from the sand, explains Hector Blanco, 61, a resident of the village of 3,000 souls, who collects bamboo to sell it. Venezuela's public health system has been crumbling for decades. Many incinerators do not work or only slightly, and the absence of waste sorting and management policies is sorely lacking. In Paparo, the waste that comes down from Caracas forms a bed of plastic, says Luis Hernandez, a 53-year-old fisherman. Before, it was beautiful, clean, with coconut trees everywhere. See, in 2013, some studies showed that only 20% of news consumers read Past the headline. In 2014, the Washington Post stated that 30% of consumers go in depth in news stories, while the other 70% are very selective as to what they may actually read past the headline for. In 2018, the American Press Institute reported that 90% of Americans feel that it's important to keep up with the news. But only 63% said that they actively seek out news and 40% said they only skim the headlines most of the time, with another 50% saying they only skim the headlines some of the time and only 10% say that they dig deeply into the news stories. And then in 2023, we come full circle with only about 20% of the news consumers reading past the headline. So when you have a headline that says we're inhaling a credit card worth of microplastics a week... And a picture of massive pollution, well, clearly we're destroying the planet and we're all going to die. But how many people will read the caption of the image learning it's from Venezuela? How many will know that that particular country is a massively corrupt, insanely poor, third-world socialist country? Did you know that they no longer have zoos in Venezuela? Yeah, no. As people were starving, they broke into the zoos and used the animals for food. That's a poor, desperate country. And then, how many people would actually take the next step of doing just a quick search to learn that this pollution didn't come from the ocean? It came from the fact that Venezuela is a very poor, third-world, socialist country that's in the midst of collapse. So, the rivers are being used as sewers. Anyway, let's get into the article. And it doesn't get any better. Apparently, quote... Each human may be inhaling about 16.2 bits of plastic every hour, equivalent to the size of a credit card per week. A new study published June 13th highlighted. Okay, notice that this is a study, which okay, we'll get to that shortly, but also notice that each human may be doing this. The headline, if you recall, reads, People inhale a credit card's worth of microplastic particles every week, study says, but But no, they don't. That's not what the study says. The study says that they may do that. This should be your first clue that there's something wrong here. But it's time for some more math. I like math. 16.2 bits per hour equals a credit card in a week. Okay. 160 hours in a week. That's 2,721.6 particles per week. Using the figure that a credit card contains, 0.2144 cubic inches of plastic. That means each bit is 0.000079 cubic inches in volume. If we think of these particles as spheres, which is about the easiest way to think about it, that would give us a plastic ball with a diameter of 0.01 inches. That's about two-thirds of one-sixty-fourth of an inch. So, um, fairly tiny. And uh, here we're going to go back to metric. 0.01 inches is about 254 microns, which is approximately three human hairs in thickness. Now, do you feel like you're inhaling particles, three human hairs thick, at a rate of one every three to four minutes? Well, nobody cares what you feel. Study says you may be doing that. But seriously... Keep in mind that 254 micron number, we'll come back to that. Let's continue. So the study in question was conducted by scientists from Australia, Iran, and Bangladesh, and was designed to show how these bits of microplastic are, quote, deposited in the upper airways so they could see how the human respiratory system interacted with microplastics. And the study was published in the scientific journal Physics of Fluid. So stop me if you've already read about this in your copy. Nobody? Nobody? okay. Quote, Using computational modeling, the scientists discovered that more microplastics were deposited in the nasal cavity than further down the airways due to the relatively low speed of flow of the particles in the nasal cavity. They also found that the flow rate, shape, and size of the microplastics determine the variation in amounts of deposition along the airways. Okay. And this is where my boxers start bunching up on me here. With this computational model now i haven't railed on this in a while so here we go we we treat these computational models as if they reveal gospel truth just hidden wisdom but as i've said before the models are only good as the modeler a person or a group of persons creates the model to create the model they use data and the modeler is in control of how much of the data they use what specific data they use and the effect of various pieces of data If you create the model starting with a bias, your model could be affected by that bias and give you biased results. Or, more nefariously and conspiratorially, if you desire a specific outcome, well, you can easily design your model to give you the outcome you want. And depending on who funds the study, it could sway your desired results. Plus, we all know that there's a lot of money in environmental fear porn. Next, the partial paragraph said that the study showed most of the particles deposited in the nose because of the flow rate and the shape and the size of the microplastics. Okay, yeah. Now, see, 254 microns is really big as it pertains to particles. This is not dust. Your typical household dust is about 100 microns max. A particle two and a half times that size is isn't going to move with the same ease or speed as dust. Further, I was curious how the lungs expel particulate, so I looked that up. Now, we know that people that work around a lot of dust and don't take precautions can pack that dust deep into the lungs over a period of time, which can cause various problems. But I found one article that discussed the lungs that was pretty interesting. After talking about the massive amount of air we breathe in and out on a daily basis and all the stuff that's in the air that we can breathe in, they say, quote, Fortunately, the respiratory system has defense mechanisms to clean and protect itself. Only extremely small particles, less than 3 to 5 microns in diameter, penetrate to the deep lung. Now remember, dust can be that small and up to about 100 microns, A human hair is about 75 microns. Per the numbers from the study, the microplastic particles would be 254 microns, and plastic particles are considered microplastics all the way up to 5000 microns, or like 3 sixteenths of an inch. So, in the respiratory system you've got the little hair-like things called cilia. They line the airway and coat the airways with mucus. Small particles get trapped on the mucus. And the cilia, quote, beat more than 1,000 times a minute, moving the mucus upwards at about 0.5 to 1 centimeter per minute. Now, as this stuff is moved upward, eventually it gets to the mouth where it's either coughed out or swallowed or hacked up and spit out as a loogie. Additionally, if anything gets to the alveoli, the oxygen exchangers, which are not protected by cilia or mucus, white blood cells called macrophages, or if needed, extra white blood cells called neutrophils, will bind to the particles, kill them if they're a living thing, you know, like a pathogen. It'll ingest them and digest them and expel them from the lungs. Quote, For example, when the person inhales a great deal of dust or is fighting a respiratory infection, more macrophages are produced and neutrophils are recruited. So, do you see how simply reading the headline without digging, without thinking, can tell you the exact wrong thing? But this is what most people do. They read the headline, look at the misleading image, then freak out because we use plastic bottles and plastic bags. So, of course, the article transitions to, quote... The study also warned that long-term exposure to microplastics is a health hazard. A related study showed that microplastics are everywhere as emerging contaminants from our synthetic fiber clothes into our water bodies and marine life and back on our tables as xenohormones in our foods. So again, we're all going to die from microplastics, so stop using plastic, you planet killer. Quote, They are generated from the degradation of plastic products, consumer products, tire wear, and industrial breakdown, according to the study led by Dr. Islam. They occur together with other familiar substances, such as additives, pharmaceuticals, and pesticides, and have been linked to cancer, hormonal disturbance, reproductive problems, obesity, and diabetes, according to another study. Okay, yes. So, yes, they're generated by degradation of plastics. That is true. However... From a month or so back, found on TheGuardian.com, a left-leaning news source, headline, Recycling Can Release Huge Quantities of Microplastics Study Finds. <laughs> what? When I read our article for the segment, my first thought was, microplastics means small plastic bits. My dew bottles aren't shedding plastic particles, I don't set it down and have to brush plastic off of my hands. I know that the manufacturing process can release microplastics, but from an industrial manufacturing standpoint, which I do know something about, you do not want your manufacturing facilities to be covered in dust. The risk and the consequences for a dust explosion, or oftentimes even worse, a secondary explosion due to dust, can be catastrophic. So manufacturing facilities aren't going to just be puffing plastic dust everywhere, but I thought... What does cause a lot of plastic bits? Well, recycling melts down recyclable plastics, but it also grinds plastics into fine particles. Quote, an international team of scientists sampled wastewater from a state-of-the-art recycling plant at an undisclosed location in the UK. They found that the microplastics released in the water amounted to 13% of the plastic processed. The facility could be releasing up to 75 billion plastic particles in each cubic meter of wastewater, they estimated. I was incredibly shocked, said Arena Brown, the lead researcher of the study conducted at the University of Strathclyde in Glasgow. It's scary because recycling has been designed in order to reduce the problem and to protect the environment. This is a huge problem we're creating. The researchers tested the water before and after the plant installed a water filtration system and found the filter reduced the concentration of microplastics from 13% of the plastic processed to 6%. The estimate of 75 billion particles a cubic meter is for a plant with a filter installed. A majority of the particles were smaller than 10 microns, about the diameter of a human red blood cell, with more than 80% smaller than 5 microns, Brown said. The facility was a best-case scenario, Brown said, given that it had made efforts to install water filtration, while many other recycling plants may not. An important consideration is what other plants globally are emitting, she said. This is something we really need to find out. The study, published in the Journal of Hazardous Material Advances, suggests the recycling plant discharged up to 2,933 metric tons of microplastics a year before the filtration system was introduced and up to 1,366 metric tons afterwards. For me, it highlights how drastically we need to reduce our plastic consumption and production. Is that what that highlights for her? Because for me, it highlights how maybe every single thing that humans do to try to save the planet, it pretty much makes everything worse. Personally, I'd maybe stop recycling plastic for right now. I mean, incinerate it, landfill it. We already know that there are microorganisms that will break down the plastics that were supposed to take billions of eons to break down on their own. And we know that God wasn't surprised by our discovery of plastics. So I'd be willing to bet a shiny quarter that the more plastic we landfill, the more bugs will reproduce and break down the plastics. Back to the original article for one last quote. the accumulation of deposited microplastics in the airways may adversely impact the human respiratory system, Dr. Islam and his colleagues said in the study. Oh yeah, it sure may. may. Good thing our respiratory system is designed like it is and works the way it does. And that's really kind of my point here. I mean, My first point is that you must read past the headline, at least with some sort of regularity. I mean, I don't want to imply that I read every single article I come across. I I don't. I read a lot of headlines and I move on. But I try to ask questions of the headline. Does it make sense? What is it trying to make me think or believe? Is it pushing a narrative or agenda? We're fed a lot of garbage, and the headlines, images, bylines, and the initial paragraphs are designed to craft an opinion in the heads of the 80% that don't dig into an article. And even then, as you could see by this article, a lot of maze and speaking about computer models and assumed effects on humanity if the body didn't do what it did. We've got to take the time to be curious and do at least just a little digging. But the other point is that the created design is really fantastic. We keep assuming that we're destroying humanity or the planet, and from a godless worldview, we're in a constant state of panic trying to fix all the perceived problems that we've apparently created, and we're making things even worse by trying to fix what we call problematic. But from a worldview where we know God is sovereign and designed everything from the beginning, knowing exactly what he ordained to happen every millisecond of every day before he created the first electron, again, we we don't want to just trash the place, but we're supposed to use it. We don't have to be afraid. For instance, we all know that increased CO2 in the atmosphere will destroy the planet. So in order to save the Earth, we must cut back on CO2 emissions dramatically. In fact, saving the planet is so important that if we need to slaughter herds of animals or herds of people, so be it, because the planet is literally dying. Of course, an article from climate.nasa.gov from 2016 has the headline, CO2 is making the Earth greener. For now. The first paragraph states, quote, A quarter to half of Earth's vegetated lands have shown significant greening over the last 35 years, largely due to rising levels of atmospheric carbon dioxide, according to a new study published in the journal Nature Climate Change on April 25th. Well, right. I mean, that's that's what we on the right have been saying forever, and trees and plants, they they really seem to like CO2, and the more they get, you throw in a little bit of sun, a little bit of water, the more will grow, almost like it was designed that way. In 2017, we have an article found on QZ.com headline, If Oceans Stopped Absorbing Heat from Climate Change, Life on Land Would Average 122 degrees F. The first paragraph states, quote, Since the 1970s, more than 93% of excess heat captured by greenhouse gases, has been absorbed by the oceans. To understand how much heat that is, think of it this way. If the oceans weren't absorbing it, average global temperatures on land would be far higher, around 122 degrees Fahrenheit, according to researchers on the documentary Chasing Coral. The global average surface temperature right now is 59 degrees Fahrenheit. Huh. So if the oceans didn't work the way the oceans worked, then things would be different. Well, what a stroke of luck that our planet has these huge bodies of water. I mean, what are the odds they'd work the way they do, right? Again, almost like it was designed. The debate from only a few years ago was over the COVID so-called vaccine, which is in no way a vaccine. The, quote, science actually had the audacity to tell us at the time that we must get this chemical injection because our immune system was useless against this new virus or whatever it is. But as it turns out, our immune system appears to have continued to work the way it was designed. It's not instantaneous for our immune systems to kick in and figure out how to fight a new virus, but it sure appears that countries that really didn't have much participation in these shots uh, did as good, if not better, than the heavily injected countries. Again, if it wasn't for the fact that our immune system works, you know, the way it does we would all be dead from uh, just everything. It's almost like it was designed with the end in mind, like, like by a designer that knew exactly what he was doing. And then, of course, we have this most recent example. If our lungs didn't work the way they did, we'd apparently be adding a credit card worth of plastic every week, killing us in less than 30 years. But once again, we see that the lungs work as designed, which is really fortunate for us. Now, I hate to imply this, but... It's almost like God knew what he was doing. In my life, I've come to the point where I had to either believe in a completely sovereign God or not. Either God is in control, not playing from behind, not trying to figure out how to work all things for good, not a master chess player waiting on his opponent to make his move so he can counter with the perfect move. No, God has already ordained all moves. All things work together for good because that's how it was designed and written from before creation. And yes, I know. This brings up the debate about free will and what exactly does the word election mean in the Bible, and this isn't the forum I'm going to debate that. And although I'm not in any way bothered by having that debate, I'm just saying that I have a peace and a hope and a joy in my life because I know that God is sovereign. He's in control. We have oil because God ordained that we'd have oil. We have cars because God ordained it. We have plastic because God ordained it. And because he ordained it, He also ordained the entire life cycle of whatever it is we're talking about, and he created all of creation to work the way it does, and my life won't end until he says it will, and it will end in the exact way he's ordained it to, and the planet isn't going to burn up, and the oceans won't stop oceaning, and the trees will keep breathing, and in God's timing, the earth will be destroyed and remade new, exactly how God wants it, and it'll be perfect. This doesn't mean that my life is perfect, far from it, but I know that God is in complete control, and I can trust Him that His plan for my life is the best possible plan there could ever be. So as I walk through the clouds of plastic dust just floating everywhere around me, I will fear no evil. I'll breathe easy, knowing that neither the operation of my lungs nor the existence of microplastics are out of the control of my God. Well, have you recovered from last time? I feel like I need to give some sort of a... Content warning or something here. (laughs) Warning, you will be hearing content and direct quotes from Andy Stanley. You may experience any or all of the following symptoms. Fatigue, numbness, heart palpitations, vomiting, diarrhea, dizziness, uncontrollable incredulity, rage, heresy-induced blindness, bleeding from the ears, or stark raving maddening. If you experience any of these symptoms, discontinue Andy Stanley immediately. Open your Bible and read. Seek out theologically sound teaching as soon as possible. So you've stumbled, likely unwittingly—I mean, I can think of no other reason why you might have wound up here—on to part two of our look at the recent sermon, uh, s- uh, sermon series by Andy Stanley entitled The Fundamental List. This is his look at what he feels is the fundamental or essential beliefs that every Jesus follower —not a Christian, Jesus follower, and there's a definite difference in Andy's mind—must have. In this segment, we'll look at parts two and three of this series, so strap in. In part one, we learned his first fundamentalist point, quote, Jesus is God's son and our king. Now, on the surface, this sounds just fine, but much like modern worship music, such as Bethel, Elevation, Jesus Culture, Hillsong, and many, many others, they sound fine on the surface, and maybe for you and me it is fine, using our understanding of the words... But the meaning that Andy has, much like those worship bands, is quite different than what you would assume. For more, go back and listen to part one of A Fundamental Disaster. To set the stage, recall this. Select scriptures in Jude. Quote, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you exhorting that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. These men defile the flesh and reject authority and blaspheme glorious ones. These men blaspheme the things which they do not understand, and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them! These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever." And in Matthew 7, Jesus himself states, "...beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter." Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, in your name did we not prophesy, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name do many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, am I saying these passages, these warnings, are referring to people like Andy Stanley? Absolutely I am. Again, part one will give you more background if you missed it, and with that, as I said, let's gird up our loins and loinettes, and let's get moving. In Sermon 2, Andy starts with a harrowing father-fail story of a family trip to Disney. He didn't want to go, ever, put it off as long as he could, but finally had to do it. Probably one of the very, very rare times I can actually identify with Andy. Disney, it may be the Magic Kingdom, but I'm convinced that it's the darkest, the blackest of magic, if you will. Now, his point was that when they stepped in his son stopped and stared and Andy turned around and looked at him and asked him, quote, it's a lot bigger than you thought it was, isn't it? And from there, he makes the point that a lot of times the actual thing, whatever that might be, is much larger and grander than the pictures and descriptions of the thing. Boom. Parallel drawn to God. Drop the mic. Now... He goes through the point of this list, his analogy of the giant house with all the living rooms, how new novel things can get woven into the faith, and some of them are toxic, and some of those things get woven into theology and tradition, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. I'm not going to go through all that again, as I've said, go back and listen to part one of this little mini series for my summation and commentary on that. But he sums it up with quote, non essentials eventually become obstacles. Now, a statement like that, made by anyone, should invoke the question in our minds, what are essential and non-essential, and says who. Andy is going to tell us what he thinks, or (laughs) feels, is essential, but does that make them so? Well, let's find out. So as he gets ramped up, he pulls out his standard palette of manipulation techniques, and he makes the two main points that he wants to make, that he kind of disguises in most of the messages I've heard him give. Quote, When non-essentials become obstacles, obstacles to a person's faith, obstacles to somebody who's leaning in and trying to figure out what is this all about. I want to follow Jesus, but now I've bumped into something that I'm not sure that's part of the equation. I think maybe you just made that up. And when that happens, thoughtful, mature people, then he gives a little nod and motion to the audience, implying that that's them. I mean, why else would they be sitting there, right? Thoughtful, mature people step back to reconsider, step back to rethink, step back to decide, can I be a part of that? And sometimes, and maybe this is your story as well, sometimes their faith survives because they just go find another living room. They just walk out of that one and say, you know what? That's not it. You got part of it right, but if that's how you treat people, and if I have to treat people that way in order to be a Christian, I don't want to be your kind of Christian, And people find a different living room. But a lot of people just step out of the living room and say, you know what? I'm done with Christianity. I'm done with faith. I'm done with church. It was either so harmful, so hurtful, or it was so harmful or hurtful to someone they love, they're like, I just can't do that anymore. Okay. So what did you hear? Manipulation technique one, flattery. You, listening to me now, are the smart, mature, honest people. Oh, good for you. Manipulation technique number two, identification and safety. He identifies with you. Maybe this is your story. He understands. With the implication, you're here now. You're safe. You can breathe again. The first point he definitely isn't making is... Being a Jesus follower is good and right. Being a Christian, ah, quite possibly a negative thing. And the second point he definitely isn't trying to make. These Christians are a hurtful group of people. You want to just love like Jesus, but there's a good chance you came from a judgmental, mean church or faith tradition, and either your feelings got hurt or someone you love got his or her feelings hurt because you or they didn't have a view that was accepted by those Christians Uh, He goes on, quote, and part of it is because you're thoughtful and you're mature, you begin to compare the teaching of a church and the practice of a church and the values of a church. You begin to compare that to uh, what you see in Jesus in the gospels. And you realize, ah, something's just off. I mean, I'm not a Bible scholar, I'm not a preacher, I'm not a theologian, but I just can't imagine that's what this is supposed to be like. The tone and the posture, the the tone and the posture and the approach to life and the approach to relationships is just off. And it felt even though it was church, it kind of felt unchrist-like. And these people knew the Bible verses, you just wondered if they actually knew Jesus. And the problem wasn't the Bible. The problem is people use the Bible and use verses in the Bible to elevate an agenda and to elevate something that they just want to do. And the way they feel and they the way they think the world should work, and it happens all the time. See, we see more flattery, but then we see his good old country preacher boy come out. Well, I ain't no good at no book learning, but sure seems to me that Jesus wouldn't care much for that kind of thinking or doing. See, this is the part of the show that he bashes people that would dare question him. This has nothing to do with you being in or escaping from a legitimately abusive church, and those do exist. I believe they're the exception, not the rule, but whatever they are, they're definitely out there. I'm not disputing that. But Andy isn't speaking of those. Notice he throws out the theologian word again, implying negative connotations to that. As I pointed out in part one— As R.C. Sproul wrote, we're all theologians. If you're a Christian, you're a theologian. Part of your job as a Christian is to learn and grow in your theological understanding. You are not to remain a milk-drinking baby permanently. You are mandated to move to the meat of the word at whatever your capacity. If you've been listening to my podcast for long, you should have picked out one more appeal that Andy has made over and over. Emotions. Feelings. Quote. I think maybe you just made that up. Quote, I just can't imagine that's what this is supposed to be like. Quote, and it felt, even though it was a church, it kind of felt unChristlike. Well, I'll agree that there is something to our gut feel, or more accurately, our conscience. But when we're talking theology or matters of scriptural accuracy, which is what Andy is talking about or trying to, with all due respect, who cares what you feel? The question isn't what do you think or feel that the Bible says. The correct question to ask is, is that true? Or is this right? Frankly, there are a lot of things in the Bible that a lot of people don't like or that don't make them feel good. But if it's in the Bible and it's correct, the problem lies with you, not the text or the faith or the pastor. I also want you to notice the blatant disrespect he has for the Bible. Now, again, I could take what he says and make it fit what I know. There are charlatans, Bible twisters, that use the Bible for their own gain. Take, for instance, oh, I don't know, just pick a name out there, Andy. (laughs) But again, that's not what Andy is talking about. Notice that he said there are those that use the Bible verses to elevate an agenda. Two things you should notice. First, he doesn't say the Bible or the scriptures. Andy is very careful with the words he uses, Bible verses. Saying it this way automatically creates a negative implication, a lowering of what he's talking about, a denigrating of the verses in the Bible. The second thing is his use of the word agenda. Now, yes, that's a common word, a very common word today, in fact. And what agendas would other pastors and so-called theologians (coughs) uh, be trying to counter and correct using these Bible verses? (coughs) Maybe the world's agendas, maybe maybe some of the same agendas that Andy, oh I don't know, agrees with. In fact, he lets us in on a little secret now. <laughs> Andy is he is so dumb that he, oh man, he thought he was only telling his audience. He told them to just keep it between them and him, but he must have forgotten he was streaming this video. Oh man, what a maroon! <laughs> Anyway, he uses the old trope, give me a topic and a point of view, and he can find a verse, a story, a passage to support it. That's where you and I should be quivering right now. (laughs) Context and intent. Are the Bible verses being used in context as intended? That's the question. And again, yes, he's correct. You can find and twist scriptures to make it say what you like. But his implication is clear, right? These stinker theologians and poopy pastor heads are using the Bible in a way that makes people feel bad. And now let's put the pieces together here, shall we? Bible verses, as opposed to scriptures. Agenda. Treating people badly. Hurting people or people groups. Against what you may feel is right. Look at the red letters of the gospel only. Agenda. Agenda. How about homosexuality, for instance? Or ecumenicism? Women pastors or egalitarianism as a whole, perhaps. Transgenderism? Affirming children in their dysphoria? Yeah, this is absolutely where Andy is going. He's not the benevolent, heroic, savior of humanity, defender of Jesus that he'd like you to think that he is. But let's continue on. So if you recall from part one... We need to be careful of these toxic ideas becoming fashionable or traditional or comfortable or cultural. We don't want these non-essentials, these peripheral ideas, per Andy's definition, to pervade our Jesus faith. Quote, Because when cultural and peripheral are considered essential, Christianity eventually becomes untenable and unlivable for someone. That's one of his big points throughout this entire series. When cultural and peripheral are considered essential, Christianity eventually becomes untenable and unlivable for someone. Um, okay, how to say this without sounding uncaring? Uh, who cares about that exactly? The Bible, the Christian faith, makes a lot of people mad. It makes them uncomfortable and combative. The Christian faith is not designed to make everyone feel good and happy. That's what Andy apparently thinks and wants, but that's not what those Bible verses tell us. He goes on, quote, It's no longer good news of great joy for all people. It becomes good news of great joy for a segment of people. Well, I hate to break it to you, Andy, but all doesn't mean every single person on the face of the planet throughout all of history. The Greek word translated all has multiple meanings. The Greek word is pas, which can mean all, it can mean whosoever, and it can mean a segment of depending on the context. As we know that the coming of Jesus angered at least more than zero people, we know it can't mean all people, which automatically implies a segment of people. All in this context means that this event of Jesus coming to earth as God-man will bring joy and eternal life to all kinds of people from all people groups from all over the world. But Andy has the same goal as many, many other pastors. Make Christianity likable for everyone. This is the goal of the seeker-sensitive movement. Find out what the unsaved world would like churches to do and be in order to get them in the seats. And the answer was for churches to be more like the world. And churches, such as Andy's, have capitulated. So, he recaps fundamental number one, then he brings back the concept of the God box, illustrating it by saying that at the final Passover meal, Jesus was, quote, downloading anything he might have missed because they were about to, quote, have a major disruption. It's an interesting way to speak of the sacrifice of Jesus. And this is when Jesus realized that they still don't get it. And why? Because what he's saying isn't fitting into their God box. Apparently, they missed the purpose of Jesus living among them. Quote, And unfortunately, many Christians, most Christians, a lot of Christians, have missed the purpose of Jesus living among them as well, that we are in some ways just as confused as the apostles. And here's why. The primary confusion arises from the way the Bible is traditionally talked about and taught. And here's the problem. Because of the way we received our Bible as children, if many of you are like me, you got a Bible when you were a child, it was all mapped and wrapped and this is God's word. And the way it was presented to us, the way it was taught, we have a tendency to equalize the importance of everything in it. It's all from God. Therefore, it's all important. It's all equally important. And consequently, the events recorded in the Gospels, the accounts of Jesus' life recorded in the Gospels, gets reduced to Bible stories, which equates Jesus' story with everything else and all the other stories in the Bible. Ah, wow! That is a false premise if I've ever seen one. He set up a straw man argument, a false choice, like you have to have one or the other. You can see Andy's view of the Holy Spirit here, and you can see his view of the Bible, and if you know him, you know exactly where he's heading with this. This is very dangerous teaching. He goes so far as to say because there are four Gospels, it proves that it's more essential than those other stories that only, you know, have one account, like the flood, and David and Goliath, and the parting of the Red Sea. I mean, how could that possibly mean or imply anything? Oh, Look at that. You see that? Four is a bigger number than one. Voila. Hashtag importance. Quote, we have one account of so many incidents when it comes to the Old Testament and the history leading up to Jesus. When it comes to Jesus... We have four accounts of the same person, all written within the first century. Why so much about Jesus? Because what we find in the Gospels, these are not Bible stories. They are not equal to everything else in the Bible. Something dramatic had happened. Something new had happened. Something that had eclipsed, really, the significance of everything that had happened before. This is what I'd like to call blasphemy. Notice that the Gospels aren't Bible stories, but the Old Testament historical accounts, uh, those are. Notice that Andy has just unilaterally decided what is and what isn't important and the ranking of the Bible. Now again, I'd agree that the Gospels are unquestioningly detailing the greatest event in human history that by no means relegates the rest of the Bible to the back burner— The New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. The Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. This may be a collection of books written by a collection of authors, but it's one story. Andy has just taken a novel off the shelf, declared that the four chapters in the middle of the book are the best, ripped out everything else, and put it back on the shelf, declaring that he's fixed the book and made it better. Andy is a wolf. Finally, at the halfway point of this blasphemy, he hits a few verses in John 14, where Jesus tells his disciples, quote, if you know me, you will know my Father as well. And this is where Andy reveals a little bit more about who he is and what his agenda is. Quote, when the implications of this statement settle in on you, when they get from your head to your heart, this will redefine your view of God. Let me say it a different way. When you hear God and when you hear Jesus, is there attention? Do these two words, God and then the name of Jesus... Do they conjure up, if you're honest, different emotions? Let me ask you this way. Don't answer out loud. Which one do you like better? Which one do you think you'd be more comfortable with? If that creates tension, you have some d and reconstructing to do about your view of God. the old mean God of the Old Testament, loving God of the New Testament thing. Unfortunately, the people that are currently deconstructing their faith all around the world are not and were never saved to begin with. Andy, promoting, even in a minor context, deconstruction of a part of your faith is, again, unbelievably dangerous. But worse, although you could take what he's saying to mean we have the wrong view of God in the Old Testament, what he really means is that we can ignore all those stories, and just focus on the red letters, because if you know Jesus, ah, you know God, so just know Jesus, the four Gospels, that's all you need. And just to be sure that you heard Andy right, he doubles down, quote, the Gospels are not additional Bible stories. The Gospels are not Bible stories about Jesus. The Gospel. It's why we have four. It's amazing. The Gospels, you know what they're for? They document, this is amazing, they document Jesus's explanation of what God is like. And as obvious as that should be, it is so difficult for us modern Christians to wrap our minds around that because, again, of the way pastors refer to and teach from and use the Bible. And I can say that because I'm one of them, and I understand. I understand that. I understand the tension. And I don't think anybody does it on purpose. But when we got our Bible all mapped and wrapped with a concordance, it's like it's all inspired. Therefore, it's all equally important. No, it's not. Think about this. If Jesus was telling them the truth, then when you open your New Testament, and if you have a red letter Bible, you see those red letters, or if you just have a regular Bible like I use, and they don't have the red letters, but you see when you read the words of Jesus, you are reading literally the words of God, your Father. You know, When you break down and slow down what Andy says, he's just not a good speaker. He bumbles and babbles and repeats himself constantly. He is literally the president and guy in charge and top dog of the Department of Redundancy Redundancy Department. (sighs) Focus, Dan. See, Andy ultimately needs to remove the other books of the Bible. In fact, he even said that the prophets being inspired by God is not the same as Jesus speaking for God. But, wait! Jesus is the prophet, priest, and king. The the prophet. Jesus is speaking the words of God. The Old Testament prophets were speaking the words of God. Why would the words of God be less important because of who they came from? They're, They're the words of God. But he's not done. Anyone for a triple down? Quote, because again, when we equate the importance of everything in the Bible, we unintentionally negate or minimize the unique purpose of Jesus, not the unique purpose of his death. unique purpose of his life. I mean, do we do that? And who is we exactly? You got a monster in your pocket there, Andy? It's scary to think that Andy doesn't know what he's saying. It's even scarier to think that he does. Well, we get to fundamental number two now, 32 and a half minutes into just under a 35 minute heretical talk. Quote, Jesus came to illustrate and demonstrate what God is like. Well, he goes on to explain, quote, If you want to know what God is like, it's this simple. This is why it's so brilliant. If you want to know what God is like, God is like Jesus. And that's good news because that means God loves you personally. And God has forgiven you because Jesus was given the authority to forgive sin at will. Okay, well, that isn't biblical, I know that we want to say that God loves everyone. The Bible says he hates his enemies, and if we're living in unrepentant sin, we're enemies of God. I know that it's nice to say that God has forgiven you as a general rule, but that's not true. If that was true, why would anyone go to hell? Clearly not everyone is forgiven, and Jesus was given the authority to forgive sin at will. Where does the Bible say that? Sin is not forgiven without repentance, and salvation doesn't occur without repentance and faith. And he didn't even come close to the gospel message, and that's because he doesn't like it. He says the gospels many times, many, many times, but he never actually comes close to telling us what the gospel is. He knows it. He knows the gospel. Make no mistake. He just doesn't like it. He wants it to be the way he wants it to be. That's literally a damning position to exist in. But as these things build on each other, let's keep going, as Andy repeats a lot of stuff from message two to message three, and if we keep going, I don't have to repeat all of the recap, that's good for you, and that's good for me. So because we're living in a goldfish attention span, social media, instant everything world, we can't start with scripture, not in the message, (laughs) no, no, we must start with some sort of a hook. And this time, Andy starts with a question, quote, what makes a sin a sin? And then after a few minutes of story time with Andy, he further clarifies his question, quote, did Jesus ever clarify what's a sin and what's not? And apparently we, Christians, have been raised to believe that that's what the Bible is for, to tell us that's a sin and this is a sin and what's a sin and what's not. Recap, recap, recap. And then he gives us the basis for what will be fundamental. Number three, we must, quote, acknowledge and embrace Jesus's characterization of sin. Now, recall. Quote, when cultural and peripheral are considered essential, Christianity eventually becomes untenable and unlivable for someone. And we definitely don't want to offend anyone. Could someone name another faith that does that? I mean, go ahead, I'll wait. Yeah, we we don't bend our beliefs to cater to some. We know per the Bible that not everyone will be saved. We know per the Bible that Jesus, Christians, the gospel is a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, but I'm sure Andy will clean up this bad boy shortly, right? Right? He's, he's going to clean it up, right? All right. Well, he's wound up. Caffeine is kicked in or whatever he's on. I don't know. Here we go. In order to be a faithful follower of Jesus, we need to know what Jesus defined as sin, And thankfully, we have Andy to tell us. See, Jesus, quote, like a good parent or a good government, <laughs> has made the rules clear, but the church screws it up. They muddy the waters. Maybe we should just get rid of the church. Huh? I'm just thinking out loud here. In fact, quote, Oftentimes, the church has a habit, you know, not just the church, but, you know, just about every expression of Christianity has a habit of equalizing rather than prioritizing content in the Bible. He makes the claim that Jesus didn't do that and that understanding this will be very helpful and liberating for some of us. (laughs) Oh, and I'm sure it will. And this is where we get to the Pharisee asking, which is the greatest commandment? And we know Jesus boils the law down to two component parts. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. The first, of course, is priority, but the second is the natural extension of the first. If we love God as we should, we'll love others as we should. But Andy does something interesting here. He quotes the first part, quote, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first. And then he stops and he changes it. Just a little bit. He says, quote, This is just another way of saying that the most important commandment is that you lean into and you love God so much, you live your life to please God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. And then Jesus says, this is the first. Okay. That two-word phrase, to please, that's not what Jesus said. Pleasing God and loving God are both actions, both verbs. Please, love, love. But I think we all understand that pleasing God is a works-based thing, where loving God is not, at least not necessarily. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't strive to please God, but that's not what this verse says. Jesus didn't tell us to work in order to show our love for God. He simply said to love God. There is a huge difference here. But see, Andy then states that the little Greek term, first, means, quote, first in sequence. He does say that it means the first and greatest, the, quote, mega commandment. This is the one that organizes all the rest. This is the one that all of them point toward. Now, he's correct that all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. But again, he says things in a very specific way by design. He added in pleasing God in the mega commandment for a reason and stated that it was the first in sequence, which the Greek can mean, but it can also mean the chief or the principal. Now, I think, and I admittedly, I could be wrong here, when Jesus says, quote, the first and greatest, he's doing what is done in scriptures quite often, essentially repeating himself to denote the importance of this commandment, the chief and greatest commandment. This would be akin to Jesus saying, truly, truly, I tell you, repeating the word meant listen up. This is very important. I think that's what we have here. Andy added pleasing God and emphasized first in sequence in order to put a different emphasis On the second commandment of love your neighbor. In fact, he makes a big point of Jesus saying, quote, And the second is like it, by pushing that this is a second in sequence, not second in importance, just sequence. He says, quote, the second is evidence of how well a person is keeping the first. In fact, the second commandment he's about to give is evidence of how well a person is keeping the first. If you're not keeping the second, you're not keeping the first. Because let's face it, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Who knows, right? How do you monitor that? How do you know how you're doing? Jesus says, I'm about to tell you how you know how you're doing. And then he states the second love your neighbor as yourself. And again, we see Andy putting words in the mouth of Jesus. This is literally blasphemy as jesus didn't say this and he said it and lied about what jesus said to make his point so you put it together and if you want to please god then love your neighbor rather than love god first and then because you love god love your neighbor you know i used to think how do i love god i'm a heavily logical emotionally stunted engineer i'm not one who gets teary-eyed that much although i found that i've become more emotional as i've gotten older is that natural or should i go see a doctor But for me to love God, my mind can't wrap around loving a being I can't see, I can't touch, I can't audibly converse with, etc. I can love a person, an animal, an object, differing definitions of love, of course, but I have interaction with those. But God, how do I love God? And I know some of you highly emotional people are cry screaming at me right now about how you just do. How could you not? You just do it. But for someone that's just this side of the tin man, it's not that easy so let me break in here. In case you're in the same boat as I was, how do we love God? Well, John 14, 15, the words of Jesus, quote, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Well, that's it. Salvation is not by works, but sanctification is, at least in some part. David, in the Psalms, speaks about loving the laws of God. So if we love God, we strive to keep his commandments. And yes, Then we look at how well we're loving God, and that's when we feel the stress-hunger pangs kick in because, wow, I mean, I'll I'll speak for myself here. I'm doing a lousy job of loving God. Anyway, Andy makes his point that Jesus said that if we want to know for loving God, we do that by loving our neighbor. And again, I agree with the words he used generally in the order he put them in. I agree from the premise of what I just laid out, but I don't agree with what I know his intent and meaning of that sentence is. Then he quotes the rest of that verse that all the law and the prophets hang on those two commandments. Well, this is raw meat to this wolf because if this, loving your neighbor in order to show your love for God, is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, you know, the Old Testament, well, then we don't really need that Old Testament anymore, do we? The Old Testament is superseded. It's usurped. It's now obsolete because all we have to do is love our neighbor. As Andy says, quote, our love for God is demonstrated and authenticated by our practical, everyday love for others, not rule-keeping. Huh. So we can, we can break the rules as long as we're showing love to our neighbors. If we're doing that, we should be good. He further goes into the account of Jesus and the disciples walking on the Sabbath and eating some grain from the fields, which, of course, the Pharisees found abhorrent as they were working on the Sabbath. Jesus responds with man wasn't made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath for man. Then Andy works his way around to saying that God didn't make man for the rules. He made rules to benefit man, which I'd actually agree with that. He did. And then he says that this means that people are the priority. Hmm. He sums it up with, quote, if someone applies the law of God in a way that harms people, they aren't applying it correctly. Okay, we need to ask what his definition of harm is, I think. He goes on to state that this is what angered Jesus the most. In fact, it may be the only thing that angered Jesus. That's an interesting statement. He's He's been very carefully setting up a straw man, pitting the love for law against the love of people. But the, the love of law is actually love for God. As I just previously stated, we're told over and over that we show love for God by keeping his commandments. But, but Andy is getting ready to knock down his straw man to prove his point. People take priority. Quote, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? This is the scripture Andy jumps to, pitting the rules that God laid down against the man-made twisting of those laws and states, quote, This is the question you ask when you are more concerned about a view than a you. (laughs) Very clever, Andy quote, this is the question you ask when you're more concerned about systematic theology and making everything be buttoned up and everything fit in a box than you are about the people that the question and the rule impacts. Well, no, that's a false dilemma. He's created an either or fallacy here where we must choose people or understand in the Bible at a core level, which is what systematic theology does. Part of systematic theology would address marriage and divorce, and the right understanding of divorce would be understood, but Stanley wants to choose one or the other and use man's laws to make his point. And this, our crazy adherence to a Bible, not a love for people, I guess, is why we ask, quote, does the Bible say blank is a sin? The implication he draws, and I think he's correct in saying that there are those that walk down this path, you know, if, if the Bible doesn't condemn it, God must condone it, which he rightly says is incorrect. Then he says, quote, according to Jesus, what's good for people is what's good, and what's not is not. Jesus had no patience, no patience for good people who weren't good to people. He had no tolerance for good people who weren't good to people. I guess I'm going to need a chapter and verse on that one, Andy, Is Jesus never said that um ever in fact when the rich young ruler came to jesus and knelt before him and asked quote good teacher what shall i do to inherit eternal life jesus replied quote why do you call me good no one is good except god alone andy is good not a good person he's good at this and his congregation gobbles this stuff up but this view this twisting of the scriptures puts people at the center instead of god this isn't good. And he keeps doing this. He keeps mixing man's twisting of God's laws with God's actual laws and then condemns people for following their man-made laws, but uses that to show that God was concerned with people, not the strict adherence to his laws. This, as I said, is a straw man and a very confused straw man at that. He continues, Matthew 23, 23, quote, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. And he camps here for a bit, talking about how he used to be a rule follower, neglecting mercy and justice for his fellow man, thinking that as long as he kept his morality and fidelity up, he was good to go. He was a legalist. That's what he was. And I'd argue that most of us are or were legalists to varying degrees. He said that he then began to follow Jesus through the Gospels and not be so focused on the sin lists in the epistles. Then he began to understand the connection between the two and his heart changed. Huh. And this made him a better person, a better pastor, and more compassionate. Then he moves on, but I'd like to give the last few words that Jesus said in Matthew 23 and 24, as he seemed to miss them, and I think they're kind of important. So we go back, quote, "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others.'" You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. And then Jesus pronounces woe to the Pharisees in a variety of ways, which all point to the fact that, yes, the Pharisees were legalists, but they were also not saved. They were not righteous. They They were hypocrites. They were fakes, unrepentant and lost. It's not that we must choose one or the other. We follow the actual commandments of God, the laws of God, because we love him and we want to worship him by doing so. And because of that, we then know how to treat others. We do both the way that God laid out, not the way man changed it. So according to Andy, what made a sin a sin to Jesus? Well, he's got four points, and apparently they rhyme. First, if it's not good for him, it's sin. Him refers to other people. If it's not good for someone else, it's a sin. Second point, if it's not good for her defer it's the same thing but of course we can't use the universal hymn here we must be equal right third if it's not good for you no can do that one got a chuckle out of the audience if it's not good for you you're sinning against yourself that's what andy says but isn't sin against god i mean ultimately can i sin against myself is the next step just learning how to forgive myself maybe because nowhere in the bible do you see anything that implies you sin against yourself or that you forgive yourself. And the fourth point, if it's not good for them, it should be condemned. You see, he says that God is concerned with our reputation and our character. Is he? Because no. The only way that applies is if our character and reputation besmirches his name and character. If we blaspheme his name by our actions as compared to our claims of who we are, that's bad. Because it offends God and brings him low in the eyes of others. Referring to the fourth point, them, he says, quote, If there's a group of people in our culture or a society in the world and they're being mistreated because of injustice or unfairness or just some societal thing, it is okay for Christians to speak out an objection to those things because they're being sinned against by another group of people or by a government or who knows, because what God values most are not his rules. What God values most are people. Ooh, this is poorly defined, wishy-washy. This is dangerous because this is saying exactly what we think it's saying. I guarantee it. He asks, quote, Do you know why your heavenly father's against sin? Because he's for you and the yous around you. Now, let me just correct that real quickly here. This life, this existence, the creation has nothing to do with us. We are not necessary. We're not needed. God is complete in Himself. If He's not, He's not God. Now, don't take this the wrong way. We have importance. We have purpose. But from an ultimate view, God is complete. Also from an ultimate view, we exist to give and bring glory to God. That's our purpose and the purpose of all creation. Each sinner, saved by the perfect grace of God, through the perfect sacrifice of Jesus, brings Him glory. Each sinner cast into hell—and this isn't a popular thing to say—brings God glory because of the application of His perfect justice. Sin is sinful because it breaks God's laws. They are actions, words, and deeds counter to what God has clearly laid out for us. It's a violation against the perfectly holy, righteous, and just judge, the ultimate being in the universe, our creator. We must understand the priority, the hierarchy of God and man. God is not up there with your and my picture on his refrigerator, just pining, hoping, praying, I guess to himself, that you and I will choo-choo-choose him. God is for us, for his glory, through both his grace and his justice. But Andy goes on, quote, When you sin, you break yourself and others, which breaks God's heart. No, when you sin, you incur the wrath of God. God hates the sin and the sinner. God has and will place the sinner in hell for all eternity because of the sins he commits and the unrepentant nature of the sinner. Hell is not a place where we're punished by Satan and his demon horde. Hell is a place where God pours out his wrath for all eternity. Jesus, through his sacrifice and his resurrection, paid our penalty for sin if we repent and believe. Which, I'll be honest, I have very serious doubts that Andy believes in the Jesus of the Bible, ironically despite his insistence on looking at only the words of Jesus. When we, as saved sinners, sin, God sees the righteousness of his Son wrapped around us through salvation. We have imputed our sin to Jesus. He has imputed his righteousness to us. The doctrine of double imputation. Now, we must still ask for forgiveness and repent for our daily sins, but God no longer holds wrath for us. He's already poured it out on his only Son, and he doesn't or won't understand this because he has an agenda. Quote, God is anti-sin because he is for you. And at the epicenter of how Jesus defines sin and how your Heavenly Father defines sin, it's how your behavior and mine impacts other people. The epicenter, the focal point, the single most important idea that all others stem from is according to Andy, that sin is defined by how our behavior impacts other people. I can't even begin to express how wrong this is, or at least... At at the very least, how narrow-sighted and incomplete and selective this is. This is dangerous teaching, as I believe I've said before. But it's time to add to our next essential belief in the fundamentalist. Number three, quote, Jesus defines sin as anything that harms you or others. And all I have to say to this is, no, no, he didn't sin is the willful breaking of god's laws it's what we do that offends god this existence is not about us the bible isn't about us the holy spirit who inspired the entire bible points to jesus the entire bible points to jesus jesus gives all glory to his father we are a created being we are a pot formed by the potter our job is to give all worship praise and glory ultimately to god the father through jesus his son we aren't the focus Even David, after sleeping with Bathsheba, and no, it was not rape, there's no biblical indication it was rape, this was a willing union, after he committed adultery, after he had her husband murdered, after being confronted by Nathan, said that he sinned against God. In fact, in Psalm 51, the prayer David prayed to God after this confrontation about his sin, David said, quote, against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, he did hurt others, that's true, but he sinned against God because he broke God's laws offended God by his actions, and blasphemed God through the character he professed versus his actions, words, and deeds. And he wraps up this third video with a stated, quote, terrifying question. Are you ready? Have you covered the ears of the children? Do you know what happy show you're going to watch after this segment so you can make the scary go away? The question, quote, are you harming you or others? He then says, stop it a habit a harmful habit that is affecting a relationship if you don't like who you see in the mirror anymore if you're losing self-control well baked into the invitation to follow jesus is the ability to walk away from it apparently his invitation is apparently to leave your sin and this isn't quote because god's gonna get you but because sin will break you i mean well ultimately yes god will actually get you of our own choosing for all eternity And isn't this legalism? Isn't this just redefining a sin in a legalistic way? Isn't this just doing what the Pharisees did, taking the laws of God, the perfect laws of God, in fact, and making them what they wanted, reinterpreting them, and then putting legalistic rules on them? How is this any different than what they did? This is what Andy railed against, remember, confessed it, in fact, that he used to be a legalistic person, and he still is, though. He's just shifted it to his style of legalism. Well, once again, Andy is not presented the gospel. Maybe parts of it, but nothing clear, nothing understandable, nothing that would clearly lay out the bad news, followed by the good news. He's doing what most evangelists do today, yelling at you. Do this, walk this way, walk away from that, stop this, start that. This is legalism, and absent the power of the Holy Spirit living within us, we don't have the power to do this on our own. But don't let that deter Andy. No, no, no. He wraps up by doing something he hasn't done in a long time, he says. This is a stand-up if you need to walk away from some sin time. But to not make you feel uncomfortable, he has everyone stand and cheer for those standing. But you don't know who's standing, because everyone is standing, so you may be cheering for nobody, but at least Andy gets a standing ovation. This, by far, is his most blatantly incorrect, heretical, I'd say blasphemous point in this fundamental list. He has chosen to redefine sin in a way that fits his agenda, his long-term goal ignoring the Bible— lying to his congregation and viewers, leading them down a path that most of them have no idea they're even on. And because of his subtlety, his cleverness, his smoothness of speech, his trustworthiness, his name, he's able to pass this garbage off as a biblical sermon, and his adherents have no idea that they just heard something that has no basis in truth, that has no merit or value, nor do they have any idea that they have not yet, in three messages, Heard anything close to what could be considered the gospel. This is not a church. This is a club. These are not sermons. These are motivational speeches or morality tales. This is not truth. This is a lie. This is not honoring to God. This is leading naive people straight to hell. And we're not done yet. But we are done for now, as neither you nor I can take any more of this right now. Now, Go watch your happy show. Go read your Bible. Go find some good preaching and teaching. Take a few ibuprofen, rest, recuperate, and we'll hit the next few messages the next time. Well, we've reached the end of another episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, review, share, and all that podcasty stuff. Contact information can be found in the show notes if you'd like to reach out to me. Lawrence J. Peters said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless. Hold the line. I think that's the name of the game for the next few weeks. Just grab on as tightly as possible with my apparently soft, weak, baby-like hands to try to make it a few more weeks, then we can get back to a more regular routine. You found your way to goal update number 27, which coincidentally is the 27th update of my goal progress for 2023. You know what's crazy? We're we're into August already. Have you started to evaluate your goal progress for this year so you can start to develop your goals for 2024? <laughs> yeah, me neither. Somehow, unbelievably, 2024 will be here before you know it. We uh, We need to get working on this. So the last week, I had a number of things both inside and outside the house going on. Some planned, some not so planned, as well as some unusual stuff going on at work. Some planned, some not so planned, which is why Hold the Line is the name of the game. Nothing overly impressive this week. So starting with weight loss, or let's just call it my weight journey as a... Uh, Uh, We can probably lose the loss part of it for now. Without regular exercise, without regular tracking of really anything, I honestly don't know where I'm at, you know, for real. My weight on Tuesday was 193.8 pounds, which means I gained 3.8 pounds over the last week. Well, that's literally not possible. I mean, not even with what I was eating, that's not possible. But don't worry, I'm good with impossible, because after three days of still no exercise, although admittedly I was working pretty hard outside on some stuff, and doing some basic calorie tracking, I lost 4.6 pounds in those three days, getting down to 189.2, which is, which is also impossible. So, I'd say that overall, I'm about the same as I was last week, give or take about 190 pounds, which is fine, it's not what I'd like, but I'm not doing anything to make it better, we're just holding the line. As for pages read, I mean, I I just, I don't, I didn't have time for it this week, I've been busy inside and out, like I said, I've been staying up late, because I've been busy doing things I didn't plan on doing, and trying to get other things done, you're just up late, and reading has not been on my mind, so I got like 30 pages read total, so there was something done, but nothing to write home about, or read home about. As for Bible reading, well... As I've been doing for quite a while now, I try to do this during my lunch time at work. I close my office door, and I spend 20, 30 minutes, sometimes a little bit more, and I read and I study. Well, last week didn't go well, like I said, for a few reasons, and so I only got three of my five days done. So for my new goal, over the last two weeks, I'm sitting at a total of 80% of my goal pace for progress. This one is one that I've now shaded a light red color. I do need to get back on that. And then devotions. Well, that's the only shiny spot in the week, to be honest. I mean, we're still progressing nicely through the Ten Commandments. We've now moved to the second table of the law, starting with honoring parents, commandment number five. So, making good progress there still. So... With about two to three weeks, somewhere in that third week probably, before I can really get back to a solid routine, at least until around Christmas where it'll all fall off the rails again, as I said, we're just going to try to hold the line. Then with basically three months of routine, I should be able to finish strong. Well, strong-ish. Well, look, I should be able to finish. That's the part that we know for sure. As for the strength of the finishing, well, time will tell. And that's all I got for you this time. A nice short update. I know that these uh, podcast episodes have been running a little bit long for obvious reasons. We'll keep this one nice and short. So with that, we'll just say, uh, okay, bye.